Speed Cafe newscast. Your host, Mark Fogarty. Coming up, Larko explains Gen 3 wind tunnel tests and delivers his verdict on the Adelaide title showdown. Late supercar's silly season move. Viva Las Vegas. Our Formula One turned disaster into triumph. Macau Grand Prix back to its best. Full debrief on the Asian Classic. Hi there, race fans. I'm Mark Fogarty, and here's what's happening. As Supercars prepares for this weekend's title-deciding Adelaide 500, details of next month's crucial wind tunnel aero tests in America have emerged. A Triple Eight Chevrolet Camaro and a DJR Ford Mustang have arrived in Chicago on their way to the wind shear wind tunnel in North Carolina. We understand the test is scheduled for three days starting December 2, with two more days available the following week if needed. It's an expensive exercise. Air freighting the cars there and back is costing $200,000 alone. And depending on who you talk to, the total bill will be at least $1 million, but probably much more. But it has to be done after a season of controversy over Gen 3 aero parity. Wind tunnel tests will be overseen by Supercar's head of motorsport, Adrian Burgess, in his last official duty before he steps away. Burgess will be accompanied by key Supercar's technical staff and, we believe, DJR's Perry Kaffer and Triple H's Jeremy Moore engineering architects of the Gen 3 Mustang and Camaro, respectively. This is the big parody play in the error arguments that have dogged Gen 3 all season. Also confirmed to start soon is transient dyno engine testing to fully paratize the 5.4-litre overhead cam Ford and 5.7-litre pushrod Chev v but how does this all work? It's an expensive system, and is it really going to end up ending the parity squabble? Well, too better to explain it in understandable terms than TV pit lane pundit Mark Larkham. Larko stars on the Supercars broadcast with his digestible and entertaining descriptions of technical stuff. So we asked him to break it all down in simple terms. Let me put it this way, what it will do by using the transient dyno and the aero tunnel will simply mean that we've used all the best tools available in the world to get the cars as close uh, as they possibly can. So essentially there's nothing really much more you can do. And I don't think there's ever any guarantees. I mean, other than being able to tick that box, which is great, and the category needs to do, I think, to put everything to rest. Um Formula One spend, as you know, lots of energy, time and resource in tunnels and they don't always get it right. But what we're doing is a little different. We're not going to develop parts in the wind tunnel, uh, which is sophisticated and problematic in itself. What we're going to do is to try and go and validate a whole series of numbers, um, maybe make some changes to make sure they marry up. Um, CFD, computational fluid dynamics, will be still very much a part of that. Um, and so, so that's a little different. And 
you know, I, I think this is I think this is good. Um, should we have done it earlier? A lot of people say, I, I for the life of me, I'm close to all of the guys, the program. I the, for me, there was never a spot to do it earlier. With all the work that had to be done with the prototypes and the testing and the pre to get it all done and happening uh, leading up to this season, there, there simply was never ever an opportunity to do it earlier. And and if I'm honest, folks, there was probably early on there was probably uh, not seen as a need because the the uh, aero testing done at the various runways around the place and the CFD work that was being done in the UK. Um, should have been sufficient. And in any other period in our sport, they would have been massively sufficient because our cars have always been way further apart. And I say that because, you know, forever our cars have been the same but different. But now we're sort of a victim of our own good work. We have made these cars so incredibly similar. I've told you before, I've had the privilege, I get to see a lot of the data uh, the overlays, the engine stuff, and with all the tools that we have and the aero stuff, with all the tools that we have had up to this point, trust me, the things have been incredibly close. And and also, trust me when I say no one rings me up and tells me to say that stuff or put it on Mahino Hub. I say it because I've seen it. But clearly, even with all of that, it's not enough. For all that, Larco still has concerns about the whole process because even with all the wind tunnel work in the world, because the cars are so incredibly close, any tiny little advantage, you know, I mean, you can't wind tunnel test for, you know, a, a 173 kilometre an hour corner where the car's at three degrees yaw and there's a 30 kilometre an hour southwest breeze blowing across the boot at a certain angle. You know what I mean? It's You, you just can't cover everything. But, but on average, you've got to get them the same. So to go to the chase, mate, what the aero tunnel will do, folks, which we haven't been able to do with all the good intent and CFD and all the rest of it, is your, which is basically the car when it's turning. So if you imagine that the car is going at 200 k's an hour or faster into the breeze, and then you turn the car like a yacht, it yours. It turns so the flow of air across the surfaces of the car is different. And that has a massive impact on both downforce and drag and balance, aerodynamic balance. So there's the first thing. They'll be able to twist the cars or turn the cars on a turntable in the aero tunnel at, you know, zero degrees, one, two, three, four, maybe five degrees, um, you know, typical your characteristics. The other thing I believe this tunnel can do is roll, which is really cool. So, again, if you subtly roll, because when you're turning a car, because let's remember, downforce only matters when you're turning the car, right, in a corner. So when you're turning a car, the car's in roll. You know, it's down on its haunches on one side and up on the other. So this tunnel actually has the capacity to roll the car while they look at that flow. So that's really good. And I trust that'll mean they can do a combination of your and roll at the same time. And the other thing I've pointed out a few times in the telecast where we have the Hino Hub, often in with the motorsport operations guys, I get to see they when they scrutinize the cars all year, they've got these little laser beams under them. So they're measuring all the ride heights that the cars are using to be competitive. So they've got all of those logs for the whole year. And so they'll now have that information, which we didn't have in the previous generation of testing we did, and where that's where Penske, I think, outsmarted everyone. Um, this time, so they will go and use all that data to replicate that in the tunnel. So they'll know right height up at the back, down at the front, the whole right height down, the car flatter, the car with a lot of pitch. So between pitch, yaw and roll, foes across a whole raft of speeds, 
in the scientific domain of a tunnel, um, coupled with CFD to validate it. Um, heck, mate, that's it. What We can't do any more than that. And it's a big investment, very expensive, as you know. Um, so I tip my hat to Supercars for, for saying we've got to do this. Of course, we couldn't let Loco go without his informed prediction of who will win the Supercars Championship. Brody Kostecki or Shane Van Gisbergen? Wow, folks, that's a, that's a tough question, isn't it? You know, I mean, I would just say on the face of it, based on the records from the year, the performances of the year, uh, Brody Kostecki, not by a mile, but he wins. But if you were talking about anyone else other than Shane Van Gisbergen, makes it hard, doesn't it? Because, I mean, he can just pull something out of nothing all of the time. But as you very well know, what's stacked against him uh, are the points and the way our point system works, which works very well for us, mind you. Um the, you know, j just winning is not going to be enough. You know, we can talk more about that, but I think Shane's got to have a very particular strategy if he's any chance at winning this championship. But no, to answer your question, Brody. And of course, no debate, he'll be a very worthy champion, won't he? Oh, not just that. Very worthy and team. Um, folks, let's not forget that. I mean, I've watched that team up close developed from a bunch of very young people, particularly those out on the pit lane under pressure in pit stops. We all saw it over the years, making lots of mistakes. We saw Barry copping and hammering. I really like Barry. I like his no bullshit approach to stuff. I, I just do um, in a world that's gone way too soft. Um, and, you know, I think now we should stand back and just pay that team some credit because to watch them function on the lane now and get their pit stops right, their strategies right, the engineering of the cars right. Um, that's the stuff that we don't see. And that's the really, really hard stuff in our game. And then when you put that up against triple eight and the might of their engineering prowess and people, um, that's no mean feat. So Brody then as the driver um and a ripping good guy. That's why I'd love him to win. I, I mean, I just like him. I drink beer with that guy every night. I just—he's a—he's a proper Aussie bloke, you know. He—he, he, he, I just—I got a real sweet spot for him. I, I really do like the guy. He's—he hasn't changed. Very humble, um, and what a talent. However, it turns out, Larko is looking forward to a classic confrontation of two very hard-nosed competitors. So I just think it's magnificent that the the championship has come down to these two combatants because they are both so hard-nosed. And it's not lost on me. It's probably not lost on any of us how Brody walked into our world with that performance as a co-driver at Bathurst where, you know, we spoke about it, didn't we, before Bathurst, just his complete ignorance to the names on the side of any of the other cars. He was doing his own thing respectfully. And, well, aren't they the signs of a tough competitor? And, you know, no surprises, here we are. So, man, I'm loving where we're heading this weekend. And don't forget, um, the, another big game on for third, you know, the podium in the championship because, what is it, like nine points or something between Feeney and... Um, uh, come on, Mark. Um, Will Brown. Um you know, that, that has implications around their other team players. 
Much more from Mark Larkham with the full interview in the Speed Cafe podcast. This week on Wednesday, ahead of the action at the Adelaide Parkland circuit, starting on Thursday. Larko will feature across the Fox Sports and Seven coverage of the Velo Adelaide 500. In a late twist to the Supercar's silly season, Jack Smith is stepping away. Brad Jones Racing is about to confirm that Smith won't be driving their fourth car next year. It's an interesting development because the entry is actually owned by his father, Pete, owner of Albury-based rail freight giant SCT. No confirmation of Smith's replacement yet, but it's widely expected Zach Best will join Andre Heimgartner, Bryce Forward and Macaulay Jones at BJR in 2024. More to come after this short break. Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuels. And with the new Bowsers at Queensland Raceway, it's never been easier to source your racing fuel trackside. Elf Race 102 is imported racing fuel direct from Europe. Offering power and protection, the Elf Race 102 is a popular fuel with racers seeking gains over pump fuel. Improve your lap times with Elf Race 102. www.racefuels.com.au All your fuel at the racetrack. You're listening to the Speed Cafe Newscast. Welcome back. The Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix was, in the end, a ripper race and a spectacular occasion. After an embarrassing start, the world's entertainment capital really turned it on. Speed Cafe's Formula One editor, Matt Koch, explains how the Las Vegas Grand Prix went from disaster to triumph. It was a fabulous race in the end, probably the best of the season so far. There was action literally from the start to pretty much the last corner, if you think of Charles Leclerc and, and Sergio Perez, but it was important that we had that race just to sort of put the memories of what happened on Thursday night, local time Friday for us here in Australia, put that firmly in the past because what happened on Thursday was embarrassing and threatened to overshadow everything else that that went on and this was the biggest highest profile formula one race in history and the sport's 70 something years old so that was really important and it delivered it was lucky that it delivered but it delivered and we did see you know you look at it on paper it's another red bull max verstappen win but that belies the quality of the racing and i think that was also a surprise for a lot of people because looking at the track no one really expected it to be particularly good for racing. It was surprising. And it's interesting. You you say they, they, they got lucky in what sense? Being such a high profile event, everyone was looking at formula one and not just us, the diehards, but, the mainstream America w- was looking at uh, looking at Formula One. It was under the microscope. So to then go and deliver a barnstorming race like we had, us that follow motorsport know very well that you can have the best track in the world and still have a dull race. There are no certainties that you're going to produce an absolute cracker of a of a race, and it's luck of the draw. 
So in that sense, that we got a very good race at a point when we desperately needed it and more point Formula One desperately needed it. That's why I say the sport got lucky because it managed to to wash away some of that, some of those memories. And it should be clarified that it got mentioned a few times over the weekend. There's a differentiation between the sporting side of Formula One, which is the on-track stuff, basically everything to do with the cars going around in circles, and then the off-track stuff, the promotion, the marketing, uh, and the commercial side, which is actually Formula One. So the FIA looks after the on-track stuff. Formula One, in inverted commas, think of, when I say Formula One, think of Liberty Media. They look after the commercial stuff. So there's two distinct groups involved. And the I guess the unfortunate thing is here is that Liberty Media has put all the money into to push this event. It's the one that's on the line for Las Vegas if it if it succeeds or fails. But the fate of that is in the hands, to a large extent, of the FIA and the management of the on-track action. And ultimately, the, the problems that we saw on Thursday with the drain cover lifting, it's not the fault of the FIA. And I, I stress that it was not the FIA's fault, but it is their responsibility. Lots of questions and criticisms of the scheduling that need to be addressed for next year. But Matt Koch, does the Monaco Grand Prix now have a rival as Formula One's glamour race? Well, that's a big question. Um, I don't think so yet. Uh, there's the potential to, uh, just because being in the US and being Vegas, it's one of those celebrity magnet locations. Monaco is a little bit, but you know, being in the US, that's, that's the center of the entertainment world. So it's just easier to have... Uh, those sorts of A-listers attend. So I think in time, Las Vegas will become you know, that flagship event, I guess, like Monaco is currently. And to an extent, I guess, a little bit like what Singapore is. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be in that little bracket. But as you sort of allude to, there are things that need to improve as well. But also just on the racing side, the schedule needs to be earlier. One of the issues was you know, a lack of grip due to low temperatures. Well, that's a result of the race starting at 10 p.m. Now, it's never been said, but the the common wisdom with the race start time being so late is that it hits about 8 a.m. in the UK. So there's a European market there, and that's obviously 9 a.m. In, in Europe. So it's a little bit more television friendly for that. But does the event need that if it's trying to crack the u.s does it care what europe is doing don't you want a, a better tv time in the u.s so there's questions around that it doesn't need a support race to help clean the uh clean the circuit up now there's limitations there because of the road closures and things that they have to do the circuit opens every night um but that's not unique monaco does that as well um there's things that they need to learn formula one or liberty media promoted this event and they will learn some very hard lessons out of that. They'll, they've been pretty quick to criticize promoters at times. So it's there's almost a little bit of schadenfreude going on in seeing them have to learn a few lessons themselves. But the raw ingredients uh, are there for it to be a tremendous event. As well as entertainment, Las Vegas is known for gambling. The world's other great casino city is Macau in China also famous for his classic street circuit. 
Macau Grand Prix was also held over the weekend, with its Formula 3, GT and Gear touring car races returning to full strength after a few years of COVID disruption. Speed Cafe Editorial Director Andrew Van Leeuwen was there on the ground, and he says the Formula 3 Macau Grand Prix is back as a star maker. Yeah, it definitely is, folks. There was just a huge amount of buzz around for the weekend. Like We had this race meeting basically over two weekends this year, a little bit of practice before we get to Bathurst for the uh, doubleheader to start the supercar season, I suppose, for myself. But um, even last weekend, having international drivers back in the Formula 4 race, that kind of made that feel different, a little bit more special. And then this weekend, having FIA F3 here again, you know, it felt like the proper Macau Grand Prix it was, a, it was a pretty impressive field. You know, you had Dennis Hauger coming back um, from F2. You had Dan Tictum coming back to try and win the race for a third time. Richard Fashore, who won in 2019, he came back. Marcus Armstrong, uh, Marcus Armstrong was here. So, like, there were some uh, pretty impressive guys, and they all got trumped by a, by a Macau rookie, um, a guy who really hasn't had a great season in FIA Formula 3, Luke Browning. He's a Williams junior. He drives for high tech, and... Um, he was just unbelievable. Like he took pole on Friday, uh, on Friday evening. He got a little bit lucky with the timing of his qualifying running there with some late yellow flags. It sort of stopped Gabriella Mini, who was sort of seen as uh, the, the premier spearhead and the guy that, that that was probably the guy to beat. Sort of stopped him having a proper crack at pole. Um, but since then, wow, he just Luke really just showed that you know he was just in control this weekend. Um, he was amazing on the on starts and restarts in both the qualifying race. And the main race today, the race did finish under safety car. There was a huge long stoppage during the race after Paul Aron uh, tore his Prima car literally into two um, at the payoff corner. The thing was on fire for quite a while. It was quite spectacular. Um, there was a long red flag. The race ended up finishing under safety car because of another late crash. But um, you absolutely couldn't take anything away from Luke Browning. He just didn't put a foot wrong all weekend. And, you know, this is the sort of race that if you can come here and win, particularly as a rookie, you clearly have half an idea what you're doing. So that could be a name to watch uh, watch in the future. Yeah, I was going to say, so he's he's the name to watch out for in the coming years, particularly, as you say, he's aligned with Williams. Yeah, I think so. He tested an Aston Martin uh, F1 car recently as well. He won the Autosport Young Driver Award, which is quite a prestigious thing to win as well. He actually said today that, this is sort of his career highlight just above that now. So, yeah, there's obviously, even though he didn't have a great season in F3, there's obviously plenty of uh, plenty of promise there. And he let sleep on the podium that, you know, he's planning on coming back here, which means he's obviously going to have another crack at F3 next year. And, you know, if nothing else, this has just got to give him so much confidence um, heading into another F3 campaign. Because, like I say, if you can do it here, you should be able to do it anywhere. Many Formula One stars have made their names on those tortuous streets of Macau. Now, there was also plenty of action in GT and TCR, as AVL also explains. Uh, so the GT World Cup, that, that was quite an emotional result, actually. Raffaello Marciello uh, won that race. He was sort of been in control all weekend, a bit like Browning, um, since he took pole on Friday for that race. Um, he, you know, obviously with these big GT cars, track position is so important here. The guy closest to him was Mara Engel in the Kraft Bamboo Mercedes. And he had an issue on a restart, which really sealed the win for Marciello because um, he couldn't go on the restart. I think it was some sort of transmission issue. And he sort of boxed up the whole field as Marciello stormed off 
into a lead and he had about three seconds up his sleeve by the time he got to Mandarin. So um, that sort of set the win, but I don't think anyone would have beaten him anyway. Eduardo Matara was sort of in the fight um, in his Audi, but the Mercs just seemed to have the edge. So yeah, that, that, that was Marcello's final start as a factory Mercedes driver. He's off to do something else as of next year. So there was a big sort of, you know, thanks Lello uh, sticker on the bonnet and uh, it was quite a fitting end. He said it was sort of like a, the perfect end to his life as, as an AM, AMG factory driver. So that was a nice result. And then in TCR, yeah, we had the uh, the final of the World Tour. It was actually quite a fascinating race because it was very much Norbert Michelin's to lose based on winning the race yesterday. But obviously, you started 10th because they reversed the top 10 here. And at one point, Rob Huff was sitting third with Fred Vervish leading the way in another Audi. Uh, and suddenly, you could sort of see the path where they could Audi the, the Audi drivers could start playing some games and get Rob to the front. And uh, Norby was still back in ninth and uh so there was sort of this feeling that hey maybe Huffy's going to actually uh steal this thing for a second but a couple of corners later his bonnet came flying up and that was the end of his day um so that really sealed the title for Michelis um which was a uh which was a great result unfortunately it wasn't a great day for Benny Barguana uh, he came over here trying to steal a spot in the top 15 in the TCR world rankings to get automatic qualification for that final in Portugal early next year he made a ripper start to the weekend, you know, given the fact that he doesn't sort of expect to be out there knocking it around with the World Tour guys. He was 12th yesterday. He was just having the best time in the world. It's been great hanging out with him and Jace, actually, and they've sort of just been so enthusiastic about it all. But Macau bit pretty hard today. He got a bit wide on the way to Mandarin on the first lap. He was actually following Jan Elishay, who grazed the wall uh, and got away with it. And uh, Benny did not get away with it. He, uh, he made a fair old mess of his Peugeot and, the poor bloke was uh, pretty devastated um, this afternoon because he's missed out on that automatic qualification. He's obviously given given the team a fair bit of work to do with a damaged car, but that's the uh, that's the price of going racing uh, racing at Macau. And he had great support from from Jason, who was sort of saying the same thing. You know, this is this is what it's all about when you go and hanging on the line at a track like this. Um, it can go wrong, and it happens to all drivers. And you know, there's not many that haven't been bitten by this joint at some point. So, a bit of a shame for Benny, but he's still pretty committed to trying to find an entry to the to the final next year and sort of continue this little international TCR joint that he's got going on. AVL spoke with Ben Barguana about his very difficult weekend. Obviously, you know, a lot going on at the start. LSA's into the wall. Did you just sort of end up off the line? And yeah, you know, I got an awesome start. Um, cars going everywhere. I got a really good run down the outside, tipped in through turn two, and yeah, the rear end just didn't stick, and unfortunately there was no room for error, so yeah, hit the wall pretty hard, which is <laughs> hurt a bit, but uh, yeah, look, it's what we do, it's, yeah. it's the game we play. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I made a mistake, so that's uh, the way it goes. I can't, can't sit here and blame anything, it's my fault. I put my hand up and yeah, look, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, all, I'm okay. Yep. I've stepped out of the car, so yeah. hopefully we can get it fixed and yeah, that is yeah. what it is. <laughs> you did so well yesterday. Does that sort of make it a bit even more disappointing for it to kind of end the way that it did? Yeah, it's a bit, bit bittersweet. I mean, yeah. the weekend was going so well, but, you know, I think everyone's everyone here has been in that position, so yeah. we've all made mistakes this big, including yeah. my father. He's made mistakes this yeah. big as well, so... Yeah. Look, it's the way it is. Um, yeah. But I can still hang my head high. We did really good. Yeah. And yeah. 
what are you? What's the plan now for the for the world final? Will you still aim to try and get there if you can find a way into it? Or yeah, if we can find a way into it, absolutely, we'll work our buddy asses off to get there. Yeah. Um, but nothing's guaranteed at the moment. So um, look, hopefully, fingers crossed, we we get an opening. And then, yeah, we'll, we'll work our asses off to find a way to, to get over there in, in a car. So, yeah, yeah, that's still the plan. Yeah. Um, but, you know, anything can happen. So, yeah. The TCR World Tour final will be at Portomayo in Portugal next March. More still to come. Speedcafe.com, your number one source for all the latest motorsport news and features. Breaking news live event updates, unprecedented global motorsport coverage, performance motoring news and reviews, all in the palm of your hand, anywhere, anytime. Speedcafe.com, first, fast and free. You're listening to the Speed Cafe Newscast. I'm Mark Fogarty and you're listening to the Speed Cafe Newscast. As well as the Las Vegas and Macau Grand Prix, Weekend featured the Australian and World Rally Championship deciders and MotoGP in Qatar. Here's Jackie with a roundup of all the action. There's pandemonium and mayhem at Formula One's Las Vegas Grand Prix. Max Verstappen added another win to his record-breaking season despite being handed a five-second penalty for forcing Charles Leclerc off the track. After several lead changes over 50 laps of the street circuit, Leclerc finished second and Red Bull's Sergio Perez third. Oscar Piastri gave a standout performance despite only finishing 10th. The Australian made up 10 places in the opening laps before making contact with Lewis Hamilton. Daniel Ricciardo was 14th. Carlos Sainz made up six places to finish sixth after being handed a 10-place grid penalty for making necessary repairs to his Ferrari after hitting a loose manhole cover during free practice one. It's understood Ferrari is now seeking financial compensation for the damage caused by the track on Thursday. The incident caused a five-hour delay while the track was repaired, pushing the second practice back to 2.30am local time after race fans were forced to go home. Formula One and the Las Vegas Grand Prix have been hit with a lawsuit on behalf of the 30. 5,000 ticket holders who only saw eight minutes of on-track action on Thursday. The lawsuit is seeking $30,000 in damages for each race fan. The CEOs of F1 and the Las Vegas Grand Prix have given statements explaining what went wrong on Thursday, but stopped short of an apology. Formula One will race for the last time this year in Abu Dhabi this weekend, where Ferrari have the chance to battle Mercedes for second in the constructors' standings, only four points are between them. Qatar hosted the penultimate round of the MotoGP season over the weekend where Fabio Di Gianantonio took the win over championship leader Francesco Bagnaia. Earlier in the weekend, Di Gianantonio finished runner-up in the sprint race to fellow Ducati rider Jorge Martin. Only 21 points separate Bagnaia and Jorge Martin in the championship standings. At the World Rally Championships in Japan, Toyota dominated its home event. Elfin Evans and Scott Martin took victory, leading Toyota to a 1-2-3 win. 
win. Sebastian Ogier and Calais Ravan Perret rounded out the podium. At the Australian Rally Championships in Canberra, Harry Bates and Coral Taylor took home the win and secured the title. Harry defeated his brother Lewis Bates and co-driver Anthony McLaughlin by six seconds in a thrilling finale. Eddie McGuire and Zach Brakey completed the podium in their Skoda Fabia R5. Australia's Toby Price and Paul Wheel with American off-road racer Larry Rosala have battled their way to the finish line in the BF Goodrich Baja 1000. The trio finished seventh in their class, Price's first finish at the event in over a year. This is Jackie Shivey for Speed Cafe. Thanks, Jackie. Well, that's it for now. I'll be back late next Monday with the latest breaking news. In the meantime, go to speedcafe.com for everything that's happening in world motorsport. And tune in on Wednesday to the Speed Cafe podcast, featuring the full interview with Mark Larkham, explaining how wind tunnel and transient dyno testing will hopefully fix supercars Gen 3 parity problem. I'm Mark Fogarty. Thanks for listening. You've just listened to a Speed Cafe Pod Hub production.